Welcome to the Dr. Dion Show, where real conversations about diversity matter. I'm an educator and consultant specializing in diversity and inclusion. In this show, I interview top experts and people like you and me, highlighting issues like race, gender, and disability. I'm here to create change, expand your understanding of what diversity means, and to continue the mission toward equality so that everyone has a fair shake. This show is not for the faint of heart, so put on your big girl and big boy pants and ride along. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Dion Show. I am excited today. I am joined by my boss for the first time in a few years <laughs> since having this uh, show. I am actually now working uh, with an organization and, uh, and now interviewing for the first time somebody that I'm working for. So please welcome Dr. Jim Finale, who is CEO and medical doctor of Care New England. Hello, Jim. How are you? Hi, how are you? Glad to be I'm, here. I'm okay. so happy that you're, jo you're joining me and a uh, long time no see. This morning, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so let's just start off. I'm just curious to know, because I don't even know the answer to this question. How did you get into medicine? Did you always want to be a doctor? Yeah, you know, that was only about five years ago, but all joking aside, um, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I grew up in a large family, um, eight kids, and I was closest to my, um, the second oldest, I'm the fourth in the, in the line, and so my brother Jack, I think, would always was going to be a doctor, I guess, from day one, and I sort of um, emulated him, I guess, and I thought that I want to do the same thing, so we sort of both approaches on parallel paths. He went his way and I went my way. And I guess that's always, since I was a little kid, felt that's what I wanted to do. I think that's, wow. probably, that's the reason. I always I always had, uh, maintained an interest more in probably the science and math side of, of, of education than in the social sciences, you know, English and those things. Now, mm -hmm. in high school, I don't think I could write a sentence, nor did I care. But all the other stuff, you know, I really, I really uh, enjoyed uh, and had sort of uh, a bent towards that. Nice. So it came to you pretty naturally, the math and sciences? Yeah, it, it really did. It really did. And wow. I found it fun. And even the stuff in college was fun, believe it or not. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I think and how I, long? If I didn't get into medical school, I was either going to be a chemistry or a chemistry major, chemistry professor. I even thought about being a dentist because my father was a dentist. Then I, realized oh. I had no skills to be a dentist. Uh, I, I don't, I couldn't do the things that he could do. And, I, and manual dexterity and those things, I said, I, I can't do that. So I, I although I was going to apply to dental schools as well, I decided I'll go to, I'll try to get into medical school. If I don't, then I'll go and stay and get a master's in chemistry and stay at college for the rest of my days. Wow. That's awesome. And then what kind of medical doctor are you? I mean, like, what is your practice? Internal medicine, geriatrician. And what, what does that mean? So um, I uh, finished medical school, did a residency in internal medicine was, that's really taking care of adults and all their medical problems, not surgery, but you know, diagnostic and doses and treatment of all sorts of ailments from the common pneumonia, hypertension, diabetes, to more complex things, heart failure, COPD. So it's really three years training in, in, in those things. But when I was um, in residency, everybody pretty much went and did a fellowship. Mm -hmm. and cardiology. And quite honestly, as I started to apply for fellowships, I really didn't like anything specifically. I liked all of it. I liked to be able to take care of everybody and all their stuff. I was 
intrigued with the breadth of knowledge one had to have. So I was, um, I was in, a, uh, in a community hospital with a teaching program, a residency program, and there was a full-time internal medicine-based faculty, two or three docs. And I said, gee, if there was a job, then I'll take it and see what happens. And then I got offered that job and away it went. Oh, wow. Okay. And then, so how did you transition? How long have you been a physician now? Sorry. A lot of time. A long I, don't, time. I don't want to age you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, a really long time. But how did you make that leap? Because not everybody can can make the, the leap. And, and essentially, you're, you're running a business. You're, you're, you're the CEO of, of all the hospital systems. Um, um, actually, can, you, can we just talk about that for a second? So there's, there's yeah. over 7,000 employees. Yep. And we have what is called seven operating op, um, op, operating units, yeah. and that encompasses go ahead. three hospitals, mm -hmm. a large physician group, provider group I should call because it, it has nurse practitioners and the like, and so about 500 providers in that group. So three hospitals, a provider group, a visiting nurses association, a behavioral health company called the Providence Center, which is a, a an ambulatory outpatient um, behavioral health uh, practice, large one at that. And then the ACO, which is our account of care organization integrity. So those are seven different distinct business units from the Canada. And then, like I said, over 7,000 employees, $1.2 billion of revenue a year. So it's, it's reasonably big, not huge, but pretty big, bigger than just one hospital. Yes, absolutely. So, and then, so what made you become CEO? What, what made you, first of all, what made you think that you could go in that direction? Because not everybody can, can do that. And yeah. what kind of training did you do? Or did you just, well, you just said that you, you kind of went into a position just like, okay, I'll try it. So is that the way you came into this as well? Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. It was, takes a sort of weird route, but I, um, when I took that first position in the training, I was involved in teaching residents and I just wanted to see patients and teach residents, whatever, like a month into it, um, our medical clinic wasn't running well. And, since I was a former chief resident, everybody's coming to me to fix it. So when I went to the chief of medicine, I said, okay, I'll do it. You got to tell the other people I'm going to do it, but I'll do it. And from then I kept getting involved in more and more things. Um, and I think it's, it came back to when I was a, a resident, right? In your third year, you're a senior resident. Usually you become chief resident in the fourth year, right? Mm -hmm. So a month into my senior residency, third year, the chief quit. And they needed somebody to step in and be chief resident. And they asked me. Oh, wow. That's where the, the travail began. And then I kept doing more and more leadership things at the hospital. And then they formed a physician group. And after about a year or two, all the employed physicians came part of the group. And that was my first really manager job. And I would say that was the year that I earned my stripes in my MBA that I didn't go to school for. It was a painful year. Mm -hmm. The place was a mess. We were losing our shirts. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I went to my first board meeting and I realized I couldn't blame it on anybody. If I blamed on the guy that was there before, I blamed it on my boss. So quickly learned about boards. I quickly learned about how I do things. And it was a big turnaround. And, but you know what? Everybody pulled together after a year. It improved substantially. I got through getting beat up by lots of people. I mean, mm -hmm. not physically, I think. <laughs> um, and from there, you know, I went through a merger, left became the chief medical officer of the largest health plan in New England because I wanted to learn that side of the business. So that was another four or five years of learning. Then I went on to be chief operating officer, a couple of hospitals, which I liked running things and building things. And then I came here uh, in Providence to set up the ACO because I had done a lot of that work. And that was really the most fun I had set it up. 
Um, and then I started uh, being in charge of all the physicians, the physician group here. And then when our, the former CEO was going to retire, they asked me to step in. And so that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, two and a half, three years. Awesome. And you've been, you have, you've been, have you enjoyed it? Have you enjoyed it? Sorry. It's not easy. <laughs> that's a long pause. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of challenges. I mean, um, here in New England, uh, when, when uh, the, the year or two before I took over, it had lost a lot of money, five, fifty, sixty million dollars a year. Mm. I came in, in the, at the tailwind of that with trying to figure out how to turn it around. We had a hospital in Fortune Memorial that was suffering financially, and we had to figure out could we close it or sell it. We were in the midst of merger talks. In the last two or three years, we've, we've uh, I'd say financially, we got a little more solidified because we at least broke even. Um, we had merger discussions, start, stop, start, stop. Um, we've recently gone through, like, we formed the medical group that was not here before. All the hospital physicians all came together in one group. That was a challenge. And the last year, you know, besides going through the end of a merger discussion, COVID, a security incident, and now more discussions uh, with uh, Lifespan, it, it's, it's been a lot of work. So I would say the real proof to the satisfaction of the job is when you look at the staff and you talk to them and it's a good bunch of people who believe we're doing the right thing. And I, I think I work for them, quite frankly, I work for them because I think if I could support them, they do a good job, take care of patients and the financial stuff follows. So it's awesome. rewarding in that light, but it's been really tough, but I, oh. I found the reward and when you get to meet with staff and they like the direction we're going, they like the fact that we communicate with them and they've done all the hard work to get us where we are. And I think that's what, makes me uh, satisfied. Awesome. And I will echo that. It's, it's, it's been great working with everyone. Of course, there's always challenges, but I, I think at, their, at the core, everybody, they're pretty, pretty, it's a pretty cool group of people. And it's, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. It's been great working with you, working for you. And um, well, we have a good team of people. We really we have good people. And I mean, life isn't perfect. You know that we talk about a lot of challenges we had and there, and Obviously, I left out the most important thing we're dealing with, which is the racial strife that we've experienced, not only in our organization, but uh, regionally and, and, and nationally. That to me, and you know, I say this seriously, that to me is the biggest challenge we face. Probably more so than the pandemic because it's so deeply rooted. The pandemic's a new thing, right? It's a virus. I know what it is, right? Yes. And we'll come up with a cure and a vaccine. It's hell going through it. But the racial disequities and things we're dealing with, like, like our colleague said to me this morning, it's been 400 years. That's and right. I think I like to fix it in 400 minutes, but I guess I got to accept that it can't be fixed in 400 minutes. But in our organization, it, it, it shouldn't take 400 years to fix it. You know what I mean? Absolutely not. That's mm -hmm. the focus of a lot of the work we're doing is we got to accelerate this stuff to show that it can be done. Yes. And, I, and don't, I don't accept the fact that it's going to take 30, 40 years to fix it here. I don't. Oh, no way. No, no. And, and kudos to you for actually, number one, you actually brought up the issue, um, which people don't do, and, and not even, not other CEOs do that. And the fact that, and, and why I respect you so much is that you are willing to go there. Like you, we've had many just really um, honest conversations about race, even prior to George Floyd's situation. And so it's refreshing to, to work with somebody 
who really is committed to that and, under, and understands, I don't want to sound condescending, but really understands the, the gravity of diversity and that it's, it's always in the room and it's always, it's always impacting how we approach um, the patients, how we pro approach anybody, each other. So um, it's, it's been great and, I, and I'm confident that, um, like you said, that we're going to definitely remove some barriers and eradicate what's, um, some issues that, are, that have been happening. You know, it's a couple of things, right? You and I have talked about this. One is everybody should be constantly learning right? Mm -hmm. Number two, uh, I, I'm not an expert at this stuff, you know, because sometimes I ask you what word to use and what's the right word, because I don't want to get it wrong, okay? And I think we all got to recognize what we don't know, but I do know a couple of things. I know what's right, and I know what's mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. So if you can identify what's wrong, and a lot of stuff is wrong, identify that's wrong, then at least you have a platform to say, if anybody disagrees that that's wrong, I mean, if anybody disagrees what happened in Minneapolis wasn't wrong, then they have a problem, right? So there are things mm -hmm. that we can identify that are clearly wrong. And you and I know, because a lot of folks have reached out to us and we hear stories. Now we always validate the stories. We generally believe the stories, right? I, mean, I think 95 times out of 100, we believe the story on face validity, right? Because it sounds like it probably happened. For sure. So we, we, we do investigations when things are serious, right? But yes. So I think if we know what's right and we know what's wrong, we should be able to get a clearer path to get to right more than wrong. Awesome. And then what you just kind of alluded to is um, in response to the George Floyd murder, um, just for the listeners to this conversation, um, after that, um, we put out some statements to, to um, actually also to the public uh, press release as well. And um, we've been holding ongoing uh, town hall discussions um, about anti-racism within an organization and it's been well attended. It has been, and I think that we found you know, what's happened at our organizations, you know, for your listeners, is that people have come out of the woodwork and done a couple. Mm -hmm. One is they've told us the stories, which, which supports our impression that we have not only conscious buyers, unconscious and conscious, but we have it. It's here. Mm -hmm. If people think it's perfect, it's not. I spoke to one of our board members the other day who said, I thought this one place was perfect. I said, well, <laughs> if you think anything's perfect about this stuff, we're missing stuff. So I think that they've come out of the woodwork, not only tell the stories, but actually ask to be involved, right? Yes. So if we get more people involved, and we, that means we got to get our management leadership involved, right? Mm -hmm. Got to come from the top. We got to get our board involved. We got to get all the staff involved. It, that's a challenge. But I think the more people we get on the team, the better success we have. And we can call it out, you know, and we got, you know, as we said this morning, this education and training could take forever. We gotta figure out how to, how, to, how to get this training embedded in what we do. Yes, absolutely. And do you wanna share with the listeners too, uh, your, your brilliant idea about 846? Well, yeah, it wasn't that brilliant. I mean, I think that um, what we thought about was how do we um, get our folks to remember? How do we not forget? What happened? I don't. I don't know. You know, I've been around a long time. Uh, I told you. I remember. This might date me, but I'll say anyway. I remember um, the demonstrations 50 years ago. I told you. Watch them on black and white uh, TV from then. It's the same as what we just experienced. So we haven't made a hell of a lot of progress in that. But um, I think if this cannot, this discussion can't end. I'm afraid at some point it'll slow down and people stop talking about it. So we decided to we decided here <laughs> is that we would, I care to every 
every day, right? The initial was to have a mind, mindfulness moment, I think we, we called it. Once a day, now it's twice a day, that we would, uh, um, for 846 business days in a row, have this moment throughout our organization. And again, the suggestion was do it at 8.46 a.m., 8.46 p.m. To the extent everybody have calendars, hopefully it's in their calendars, to say stop at that point in time of the day. And we all have to remember to do that, right? So I remember last night. And how did it go? My calendar, I, well, I just stopped. I just stopped and thought for a minute, right? Mm-hmm. But that was good because we all need reminders. But the point of the 846 was that'll take us, what, three years? Probably in yeah. days, mm-hmm. three or four years. And that means it, if we do it every day, it'll outlast you and I perhaps, but it'll keep it going. And so people remember it. What does 846 stand for? To me, it stands for the fact that we've got a problem we need to recognize and we have to be vigilant and endure all the stuff and keep and keep the conversation going and action. So that's I think that's what we decided to do. And I think it's a great idea. And um, so 846 is, is significant because it actually represents the amount of time uh, that George Floyd was in a, essentially, um, you know, under the knee of the officer right. um, before he passed on. So that's the significance of 846. Eight, point out that he passed on before 846. Remember, Which is even back for even a couple of minutes. So I, I'm just, I just want to, I guess I'm trying to point out how appalling that whole thing was because the poor guy had died a minute or two before he still was on the guy's neck. Despicable. I, it's despicable and, you know, it's just horrible. And which is why I'm, I'm glad that we were able to engage in conversations because I, I just didn't think, I didn't think it was, and I know you agree with this, it, it was not fair for the employees to come to work and just pretend like nothing happened. Like nothing happened. Yeah, you know, when that happened, you're right. We, remember we got people, are you gonna support us? People wanted to go to that Friday afternoon demonstration. You know, I'm, I'm, I was just like delighted. You know, the people at WNI not only told people that one of our hospitals, right? I, I know that's what they did. I know others did other things, but I mean, they passed out masks for people to take with them to the demonstration. Yes. We, we took the, the step that we support people's right to be heard, right? Absolutely. We all believe in nonviolence and all those things. And it's unfortunate things have happened by others that shouldn't have happened at these demonstrations, but people have a right to be heard. It's, and we support other people to do that. Then within the residents at OB, right, the residents at WNI and I had a public demonstration another week later that you and I went to. But so That's we right. support our folks to do these things. Yeah, the silent protest at Women and Infants Hospital was 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 really profound. Oh. And and actually going through that motion of having to be on your on your your knee kneeling for eight eight minutes and forty six seconds, it was it was it was That's riveting. It. it was unbelievable. It was wasn't comfortable. I mean, no the amount of time you were there that wasn't it wasn't easy remember it, it was not at all and then it kind of drilled it home even more that to, for, for that officer to be sitting there with his hand casually in his pocket like it just it, it was it just felt even more sickening yeah having having gone through that that exercise I so agree. so then so what you 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 go there and you feel comfortable. What advice would you give to other CEOs? Not necessarily in healthcare, but I think what, what the, 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 the qualities that you have as a leader um, and, and also in addressing, as a leader and also address, addressing diversity issues, what advice would you give to other people who are listening? You know, I, I think you have to embrace the situation, right? I think you have to lead. This is when leaders lead. Okay, and I'm not sitting there saying I'm any different than a lot of folks that have done this because a lot have done it. 
people may be afraid to get out there because they don't understand. So, you know, if you're going to be afraid of leading, then you're not a leader. So, you know, you're here, you can help guide us. Uh, organization our side should, our size definitely should have an active diversity effort. Okay. Mm -hmm. With people to lead the way. I've, I know we have people here uh, that can guide us through all this stuff to work with community aids. You know that, right? Yes. Um, so I think you can't be afraid to lead on these issues. If you're afraid and you get some help, you know, if you're a hospital leader, system leader, and you're having difficulty with a service line or if you bring in an expert consultant, bring in somebody to help you then. Make mm -hmm. yourself feel more comfortable. But if you're afraid to go out there and do that, you can't lead, you can't lead a workforce. I mean, if you look at some of the size of organizations have three, 400 people working for them, look at, and in healthcare, look at who you serve. I remember like many years ago, telling them, I, I was, had this clinical interest in geriatrics and I said, I'm doing an analogy just like you always do. And I, I said to <laughs> my chief, I said, I like, I think we should develop this geriatrics program. And he said, I don't think we want to be in that business. To which I said, have you walked around the hospital lately? That's who we take care of. So if you look at the workforce, you look at who do we take care of? We have to be in a diversity business. That's right. Okay? Mm -hmm. You have to deal with this. You have to understand it. And you have to analyze. You said, what's the data out there to make sure not only that our workforce is developed, but that we're taking care of our patients right? You know and I know we have, we have disequities in care to various populations. It's well studied throughout the country. We're no different. And what are we doing to address those issues? So, That's right. And a little birdie told me that you're actually still working, you still visit uh, nursing homes. No, I stopped that, thank goodness. I still see some patients at home. Okay, at uh, home? Yeah, so I, I've been, I never gave up seeing patients and I hail from the Worcester area, but I'll admit over the years, as you've seen less and less, there are less and less of them with us because I take care of a very sick cohort, right? Mm. I still have you know, a couple dozen folks I take care of and you know, a couple of them can't leave their house. Wow. So I'll go see them at home. Okay. And that's actually, that, that's beautiful. Well, it's, it's easier for me to do that. Than, even during the COVID stuff, I had a patient that, you know, was chronically ill, has a bunch of stuff. Um, and I said, it's easier for me to, on the way home, to stop at your house for 15 minutes and you to drive in and come to the office because I got to go to the office too. So it's actually just as easy for me to stop at your house, quite frankly. And That's awesome. And plus, he's probably nervous as hell to go to the hospital to be seen, given the mm -hmm. COVID stuff, right? And he's clearly uh, immunocompromised, right? So, so I still do that because number one, I really like doing it. Number two, I've taken care of these patients for a long time. And number three, people can't tell me I don't know how to do that. They can tell me I don't know how to run a hospital, but they can't tell me I don't know how to do that. Wow. Wow. Awesome. So COVID. What is your, what is, so we, we, we made it through, I think we, we made it through the crisis so far, um, so far. <laughs> and we're, we're seeing uh, um, an increase around the country. What, what is your prediction? What do you think is going to happen? I don't, I think, and I don't know. So I think we will get more cases again. We will. Okay. In the fall. I, I think that we're much better prepared. I think all the preparation, although we didn't need a lot of the stuff we did, for instance, at Kent Hospital, our 200-bed med surge hospital, 220-bed, mm -hmm. we have the capacity to have 45 or 50 ventilators, right? We used to only have 15. So we wow. developed the process to be able to extend out to other areas of the hospital. 
and to have COVID units and non-COVID units and ventilators in different places. We're now prepared for it. We are prepared, even though we didn't use it to that extent during the initial crisis. So that's good. Well, we have probably today at Kent 12 patients, some with COVID and some with still under investigation. So the numbers are dramatically lower. You know, all these states from New Jersey North seem to have done a better job because mm -hmm. yesterday Massachusetts had no deaths. Okay. So That's I right. think we've done a great job. So I think it will come back a bit, but I'm certainly hoping and anticipating it won't be as bad as the other states that are experiencing it now. You know, I guess if wearing a mask and social distancing and not having large crowds of internal meetings and folks getting together is how you slow it down. Well, damn it, the rest of the state should do that. I know people yeah. hear about their freedoms and rights, and you know, I, we, you and I talk about that more and other stuff. <laughs> so, wearing a mask it protects the freedoms of others. Okay. Well said. I don't think wearing a mask really inhibits my freedom a whole hell of a lot. But if we're about caring for a fellow man, wear the goddamn mask, will you please? It's not exactly it's not a big deal. I come. I have a place that's near near the ocean down at the Cape. So it was what, Saturday. It's a lot of people on the beach, right? Mm -hmm. Every group was 12 foot apart at least. Huh. It was no, it was interesting because they they were in their groups. Yes. But they weren't on top of one another. It was kind of neat, you know. Now were the kids walking up and down without masks? Yes. Should they wear it? Yes. Uh, and the opportunity to go out to eat in an outdoor place. All if you follow the rules, they want you to wear a mask, walking in, walking out, and all the waiters are doing it. I don't think that's a big deal to do if you can have an impact like I think we and around surrounding states have had. So I think it'll, it's not going to go away. We're going to need a vaccine, I think, is really what's important. Mm -hmm. I think that hopefully the rest of the states can get their act together. They're going to have to retrench a bit before they can open up again. Yeah. But, you know, if people would, you know, if, if our leadership would wear masks, then maybe they'd set the tone. But every time we tell them we don't need to wear a mask, what are they going to think? My, my freedom is being That's inhibited. Right. I mean, stop. Your freedom's not being inhibited. You're, you're helping your, your fellow man. And I think, exactly. I think it trumps the rest. So uh, I think, you know, we will have another problem, but I'm hoping it's not nearly as bad as it was in this state before. Okay. Well, well I'll, I'll take, I'll take your words and I'm, I, I feel optimistic now because I'm, I'm like, what's, what's going on? Like, I don't understand. Where's the discipline? Just put on a mask. It's, it's not difficult. You know, and putting on a mask is not political. It's oh, about life and death. So what's the difficulty? Yeah, and yeah, and you see in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, a lot of most people wear masks. They do. Well, I mean, you'll see an occasional I was gonna say nut, but occasional person <laughs> not wearing it, but most people are, aren't they? I mean they really are. Yes. And you know, some people are striding in zealots on the mask and you know, but it's not that big of a deal. It's really not. It shouldn't be. What an industry. A lot of companies now make a mask and stimulating the economy. So buy a cloth mask, right? There you go. There you go. There you go. So um, we're coming coming to a close, but I wanted to ask you a question about just like, what is a, what is a date? Like if I email you, I get a response probably within five minutes, like any time of day, any day. <laughs> Do you... What is your day? What are your days like? When do they start? When do they end? Do you like how much do you sleep? Because I swear you don't sleep. No, I mean I, I mean I get up around four, four fifteen in the morning. Oh wow! Um, I do this exercise thing because I'm a compulsive son of a gun. 
<laughs> then I have something quick to eat and then I drive in. I don't live close. I'm about an hour away from work. I drive in and actually sometimes, although it's a long drive, you get to think about things. So mm -hmm. uh, get to work usually around 6.15, um, probably leave five, six or so. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I would say two nights a week, I had something at night. And that really lengthens the day. You know, if you imagine you get into work at six o'clock and you don't leave till seven or eight at night, by the time you get home, it's dead, right? Oh, yeah. But one good thing about COVID is there haven't been any night meetings in a long time. <laughs> and, I, and I'm loving it. Because I get to, I get home around you know, six or 6.15. You still have time to be normal at home. You know, uh, I'm a little nuts because you're right. I answer emails on the fly, right? I I go to meetings. I don't really usually do it in five minutes, but I'll, I always have pride in myself of being responsive. So I'm going to answer your email no matter whether you say it or not, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's an hour, two or three. Actually, you know, it's interesting. People will complain to me. I didn't hear back from you. It was like three hours ago because I answered so quickly. Uh, so I was really? kind of tied up, you know? Um, but um, so I usually do respond and people say, why on the weekend do you do that? Because if I have a half hour free on the weekend and I'm walking from one room to the other, I can go into my home office and do something for 12 minutes. It saves me time the next time. It's just built into my daily life. It's awesome. Um, you know, I just, so I think responsiveness is important. I don't expect people to be as nuts as I am. But I just focused on that. And then one thing I've noted, which I also like, is the fact that you are the CEO. You're a busy guy. You're pulled in a million directions, but you do. Like we've been on emails together with with um, uh, uh, employees, not even leadership team, and you will respond to every employee's email. Absolutely. And I think that's huge. I think it's a. So listen, I put my cell phone on my responses, and people think I'm nuts. Generally, people don't bother you unless it's something really important. They don't. I, I started this when I was a CMO at Blue Cross in Massachusetts, and I would send a letter out to all 20,000 physicians every month and always have my email address and my cell phone. And people said, what, are you crazy? So you know what? I get one or two phone calls a month from that letter from physicians. Hmm. But what they know is you're telling them you're available. They don't abuse it. And it's get, sending them a message, you're out there. So I think that's important. Our, you, see, you see, our staff responds to you and I, a lot of this stuff openly. I yes. send an email out, they, so they do respond. So I think that's good. And I think it's great that as a leader to be accessible like that, because that it, it, it kind of, it doesn't have that huge separation of you being up in the clouds and, and, and um, not be able to have a real conversation or be a real person. And it makes yeah, a difference. I, I think it's important. I'm no different than a lot of folks, right? I mean. I have kids, I have my kids' travails. I have a wonderful wife. We have travails, everybody does. I put my shoes on the same way, okay? You know, I grew up in a large family. We had hand-me-downs, you know. We didn't, we all ate well and everything and we brought up well. I mean, but I remember my old man didn't give me a dollar. I mm. We had eight kids and three bikes and we all fought over them. And then later, you know, my father wasn't poor, okay? But, I think he tried to teach us that I'm not giving you anything. Okay. You're going to have to go earn it. So, um, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. Awesome. Awesome. And, um, what keeps you up at night? Uh, what keeps me up at night is the challenges we have that we aren't, we always have to, I always worry that we have to take care of our patients the best way possible. 
and I worry sometimes when things are challenging. That's why I always worry about making sure we take care of people well. You know, the finances and the operations stuff, that's all important. But when we have a particular patient issue, whatever, those things always concern me. And worrying about my kids always keeps me up at night because you know what? I told you this before. John, I know you got a couple of young daughters. They never go away. It never ends. It never ends. The worry never ends. God bless mm. you. One of your daughters might grow up and have a kid, and then you got another worry. Wow. Now, it's all good, right? It really is all good because what do you live for, right? But I worry about them a lot. It's a lot. I'll bet it's a lot. I worry about them a lot, but that's part of the job. Wow. Well, it's been really great to have this conversation, and I learned uh, more about you, actually, through this conversation. <laughs> And, and I'm happy that the listeners were able to actually hear the person that I, I'm, I'm spending time with every day. And it's just been, it's been great. It's been a privilege. It's been honest, um, an honor to actually work with you. And, um, and I remember you said, uh, and I'm going to share this, that, but that one, of, one of our first meetings I asked about was a figurehead. <laughs> and I, I know, I know you were taken, you were taken aback by that question. But given the response to the George Floyd issue and how, you know, you, you're just like, you're, you're on it. And I, so now I know, and I asked that question too, because I think that's what people should ask. Anyone who's applying for a chief diversity officer job or who's being in, uh, interviewed to lead an organization with diversity, that's probably a good question to ask, to really, really see if the person that you're working with is committed to the issues. Because, you know, coming from the consulting world, there are many people who just lip, lip service and they don't, really, they don't really believe what they say. And so I'll tell you, it's been awesome working with you. No, and um, No, I appreciate it. I think the other thing, if, that's a good question. As people listen that might want to choose that path, um, I think you're right. You got to find out if, if the organization, you know, just kind of hire you because now they, they can check a box. I'm not, mm -hmm. I've never been a check the box person, right? If you're going to come here, you got, you got a job to do and you got to do it. But I think sometimes, so, so this is the first chief diversity officer position, right? So mm -hmm. if you're coming in as a consultant to a large corporate entity, right? You got to figure out how the place works. You got to figure out, but if at least if leadership is telling you the job is serious, you figure out how to make it work, right? We, we have to figure out how to make it work. And then again, I don't, the amount of uh, work and things that we have to do is far greater than we anticipated when it started in December. It's exciting. Yeah. So we'll figure it out. Who would who would have thunk it? So I think you 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 made a you made a, a, a good decision actually conceptualizing the idea of, of hiring um, uh, for a chief diversity officer because you know I know there were uh, just speaking to some of my my friends and my former colleagues I mean there are people who are just nothing has been said to date regarding the situation and uh, it's a mess. Yeah, well, mess, you know, so. if you're going to be silent, then you're abrogating your responsibilities as a leader. Well said. So. Well said. Well, Dr. Jim Finale, it's right. been wonderful talking to you today. Um, once again, we both work for Care New England, and that's uh, based in Providence, Rhode Island. We are a nonprofit, so anybody who's willing to make a nice donation to the hospital system, please do so. <laughs> we welcome them, and, and also partnerships. And um, thanks again for coming on today. Anytime. Thanks a lot, Dion. Take care. Thank you.